May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The lectionary, in its wisdom, or maybe we should say God in his wisdom, has us in 2 Corinthians again today for the second time in three weeks. On sexagesma, I mentioned that one of the occasions behind the Apostle Paul's writing of second, his second epistle to Corinth was that there had been false apostles that influenced the community to spread a malformed gospel and cast doubt on the authenticity of Paul's apostleship. This led our patron to launch an extensive defense of his ministry to the Corinthians to keep them from being misled, not only by false apostles who lacked genuine authority in the church, but also who promulgated a false gospel. Our reading today is an extension of that defense, which is included in a larger exhortation to the Corinthian community that they should follow Paul's example as a cooperator with God to bring about the reconciliation of the world. And that's paired with an urging for the Corinthians to repent of their sins. And finally, we'll see that there is an encouragement to persevere so that they can enjoy eternal bliss. Now, before we get into the text too far, we have to step back and talk about different ways to speak about causes, especially when we talk about salvation. What causes our salvation? On the one hand, we affirm with the Christian tradition that God is the ultimate source of our salvation. He is the ultimate cause. Without him, none of us who are saved would be saved. Without his initiative, we would be separated from God for both moral and metaphysical reasons without any hope of reconciliation and relationship. But one of the beautiful mysteries of our faith is that God often uses what we might call secondary sources, which include human actions. This is because God is not a being among beings. He's not just another thing in the universe. He's not finite and in competition with creation. And it also points us to his loving nature. He makes us alive so that we can genuinely and really participate or partner with him. So when someone asks you the question, how did you become a Christian? You can answer a number of ways. You can say, I became a Christian because God poured his grace into my heart. You could say, I became a Christian because I was baptized into the church. And you could say, I became a Christian because I heard a sermon, or I met a faithful Christian who witnessed to me, or was inspired by some other form of charity or testimony. And guess what? All three of those answers are valid and true. What this means is that those of us who are Christians are not merely passive receptacles of grace, but active participants in the form of secondary causes in bringing about the reconciliation and restoration of sinners. According to St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.15, this is all because Christ the God-man died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. And what this means is revealed two verses later. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Part of being transformed into this new creature then is becoming a representative of God in the world. The way St. Paul closes out 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is to say, now then we are ambassadors of Christ. Now there's a sense in which St. Paul is describing the reality of being an ordained minister. An ordained minister is a cooperator with God in a unique way because it's the clergy who administer the sacraments, who preach the gospel, who teach and lead the church in order to feed and build up the flock. But this isn't empty clericalism. The end goal is for the laity to be built up into ambassadors themselves who carry the gospel to the world through their various vocations. So the church, when we're together, especially on Sunday mornings, is a place where we corporately rehearse the story that we go to share with the world. And that story is the story of our creation, our fall, and our redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that story that we tell is wrapped up and expressed through all of the doctrines that we believe, which are informed through the scriptures, through the preaching, through the liturgy, through Bible study, and through a number of other things that we do together. And so, as you all, the laity, leave those doors on Sunday mornings and you go about your weeks, you become a type of minister, participating in the royal priesthood of Christ in the sense that the various relationships, the various vocations, and the various contexts that you inhabit are arenas in which you can tell the story of our salvation. Now, in this exhortation to the Corinthians that they should be co-workers with God, we see Paul credibly defend his ministry because false prophets tell people what they want to hear. They tickle ears, they lower the bar, they assuage people's guilt. But Paul doesn't do this in our reading this morning, quite the opposite. He raises the bar, he makes it more difficult. This is not the prosperity gospel that he's preaching. It's not moral therapeutic deism. It's not a political or cultural echo chamber. These are all too easy. Real Christianity, as St. Paul points out, both in word and deed, is hard. Impossible even, apart from grace, because it's built on the foundational principle of sacrifice. So rather than presume on the grace that's been given to us by doing what we want, we should use this life to repent so we can enjoy eternal bliss in the life to come. To highlight this point, St. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. For God saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. And in the day of salvation, I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of our salvation. This has an impact for us as hearers of the passage because it urges us to live a life of repentance, which is an apt theme for these 40 days of Lent. Paul is speaking, of course, to the Corinthian community particularly. That's who his letter is addressed to. But his message is not at all locked into that context. It's just as relevant for them as it is for us today. Receive not the grace of God in vain. It's both a challenge and a warning that we need to hear. There is no time to waste because now is the time. Now is the day of our salvation, which means we cannot procrastinate. We need to take every chance that God gives us to recognize his grace in our lives and to participate with it. 
So for the hearer, Paul's exhortation initially directs us inward. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it doesn't stop there. Because this exhortation should move us from being hearers to being doers to being preachers. It should fill us with a sense of urgency. It should light a fire under us to evangelize. We say it every week, but it's important to be reminded. Jesus Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead. The gospel expands our horizon beyond ourselves. Yes, we want to make sure that we as individuals are right with God. But we're also called to recognize that our relationship with him is not private. It's played out in our relationships with others. So the reading should cause us to ask an important question of ourselves. Am I bearing that message of reconciliation to those around me, to my family, to my friends, to my coworkers, to those I interact with online, to my political opponents, to people who cut me off in traffic and make gestures at me, to strangers at the grocery store? It always reminds me of the reluctant prophet Jonah, which is a great little book. Called to preach to the Assyrians, who were a mortal enemy of Israel, Jonah, of course, dragged his feet. He tried to run away from God, going to the opposite end of the map to where he was supposed to go. And even after the infamous fish incident, he was pretty lackadaisical in his preaching to the Assyrians. But God is a worker who can use even a dull tool. And the Assyrians respond even to the minuscule effort that Jonah gives them. Jonah, see, presumed on grace. He thought that his position as an Israelite exempted him from caring about and loving his enemies. But the Assyrians, somewhat surprisingly in the narrative, are a figure for people who respond. To use Jesus' parable of the sower from just a few weeks ago, the Assyrians, this godless country that persecuted Israel, were good soil that produced the fruit of repentance, even when the farmer scattered the seed rather carelessly. But it raises the question then, who who are we in that story? Are we the ones who presume on grace, or are we the good soil? And if we really are the good soil, then what that means is the fruit we bear should cross-pollinate in all of our circumstances. A final facet of our reading for today, connected to what's come before, is that grace is a powerful thing that's given to our souls that infuses gladness in it and empowers us so that even our suffering becomes transfigured. Perhaps this is more evidence of St. Paul's authenticity, the myriad of contexts through which he was faithful to his apostolic vocation, even when those contexts involved hardship, deprivation, and persecution. A few weeks ago in our 2 Corinthians reading, we saw a similar list of unlikely qualifications to put on a resume that overlaps with what St. Paul identified as his qualifications in our reading this morning. Things like being beaten, imprisoned for the gospel, enduring storms and tumults, labors, watchings, fastings, and many other difficult situations. Grace operates almost like a switch in our soul, and when that switch is flipped in us, these things which are seen as almost universally negative, almost always inconvenient, become for us a medicine that contributes to the healing of our souls. C.S. Lewis says, it's because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. He says pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
He says, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the frame of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. Or as St. Paul iterates in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. In Paul's own life, These experiences undoubtedly made him a better preacher because they became opportunities for him to encounter God's grace in such a way that his preaching was not abstract, it was not theoretical, but it was personal and intimate based on his firsthand experiences with our Lord. That we would pay attention to the grace that God gives us in our lives, I have no doubt he would do the same for us. So as Christians, we are called to be cooperators in God's unfolding plan of salvation, which should lead us both to repent of our sins and invite others in to do the same. And as we do, we'll begin to see our reality, all everything, even the bad and the good, the pleasant and the unpleasant, as integral to our formation as disciples. These are especially important lessons for us as we embark on our 40 days of Lent, in which we traditionally use the absence of food to emphasize the positive actions of almsgiving and prayer. Fasting is a way for us to live in a state of perpetual repentance for our sins. Almsgiving is a way for us to keep that cooperation with God when we're out in the world, giving to people who are in need, living out the gospel in our engagement with them. And prayer is what better enables and equips us to acquire that new perspective, which sees God at work in all of our circumstances and teaches us to live open to his movement. The index cards now. So I want to end a little differently this morning. So you should have gotten the index card with your bulletin. And if you didn't, you can grab one as you leave or you can get one at home. And if you want to participate, and I would encourage you to, but it's obviously, it's not required, I'd like you to spend the rest of the Mass in prayer, asking and meditating on the people in your various contexts, your work, your home, your family, your friends, wherever, who might not be Christians. Maybe they weren't raised in the church, uh, or maybe they were raised in the church but have left the church. So ask God to bring five of those kind of people into your mind during the service or, or at home later. And then write them on the index card and put it where you won't forget it in your prayer book or in your Bible or tape it to your bathroom mirror so that you see it every morning and commit yourself to trying to pray for them at least once a day, especially if you're fasting during Lent, but even if you're not, you can still participate. Pray that God will bring them to himself and also pray about how you might be one of those secondary causes that God uses to bring about their redemption. Ask yourself or ask God, does he want you to share the gospel with them? Does he want you to invite them to church? Does he want them to help you in some material way, help them buy groceries, help them pay a bill? What does he want you to do? What does he want you to say? And how does he want you to do or say it? Meditate on that these 40 days of Lent and see if he opens the door for you. If we have about 80 people total today, and I think we'll have more than that, if everybody writes down five names, we could have over 300, 400 names. So I would encourage you to do that this Lent. Receive not the grace of God in vain, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. 
Behold, now is the day of salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. 